I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14 is our reading. Um, uh, when Pastor Rob uh, is away and uh, um, I fill the pulpit on Sunday mornings, uh, there's always the, the, the difficulty on my part in terms of preaching and uh, choosing a text to preach from because I never want to interrupt the series that he's in the middle of. So I thought this morning that it might be helpful to us um, if I preach on a subject uh, that might bear, if, uh, if you've been paying attention to what's going on in the world, that might bear on uh, what's happening in our world today. And that passage is uh, Matthew chapter 24. And uh, Jesus in chapter 23 has um, issued a number of woes uh, pronouncing judgment on the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 3, he has pronounced his, he has uh, lamented over uh, the city for its failure to recognize that her house is left desolate. That Jerusalem and the temple is a house left desolate, he says at the end of chapter 23 in verse 39, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that brings us then to chapter 24, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 14. This is the word of God. Jesus left the temple, and he was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him, privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, 
The love of many, many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. We do indeed uh, bow in your presence, O God, and ask for your illumination. You have given to us your word, and it is a lamp unto our feet. And if we pay attention, you will grant to us wisdom. And so we ask, O God, that you would grant to us the light of, that comes from your word through the ministry of your spirit. We ask this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a passage that uh, reminds us that in times of world turmoil, the disciples of Jesus need to be those who remember what Jesus has said about the process of history and the signs of the end. In times of world turmoil, we need to be reminded as Jesus' disciples what Jesus has told us about world history and the time of the end. In fact, I think the being reminded of it is at the very heart of the comfort that the one who knows Jesus as their Savior derives because of the fact that he's spoken to these things. When we see them take place, we are reminded, yes, indeed, he has spoken about this. And uh, it gives us great comfort. It gives us a way of understanding with wisdom what is happening around us. This uh, section really is introduced by verses 1 and 2, where Jesus is at the temple, and he's been teaching at the temple, and he now walks away. Uh, he walks away because... Remember that he is God. And remember that uh, the prophets had told of the time when his glory would leave or depart, that the glory of God would leave or depart the temple. And I think what we need to see in these words, Jesus left the temple and was going away, we need to see that God himself and the glory of God is departing the earthly temple of the Jews in Jerusalem. But the disciples don't like that. They like the temple. And uh, they come to Jesus and they say, you know, you really, should, you really should pay more attention to it, in a sense. They say, they point out the buildings of the temple to Jesus. And it was. The temple was a grand thing. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was one of the great wonders of the world of that time. 
It was an amazing feat of architecture and human ingenuity and just the ability to build such a massive structure to the glory of God. And it was the pride and the jewel of the Jewish people. And the disciples are taken with it. Jesus is not. And it reminds us of the fact that Jesus sees these things differently from most men. He sees the temple. He sees its grandeur. He sees the same thing that the disciples see, but he sees through it. And in the same way, I think it can be said that everyone who knows Christ and is a disciple of Christ learns to have the same way of seeing what is around us. You see, but you see with understanding, and you see through it to the end. Jesus knows that this very temple will become a heap of ruins. He says in verse 2, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He knows that this will happen, and he knows that it will happen in A.D. 70 when the Romans come and destroy Jerusalem and destroy this temple. And so... It gives us then a way as well, all these years later, of looking at all the grandeur of the world. And I do think that there's there's mixed feelings here. On the one hand, God has made us in his image. And he's enabled mankind to accomplish great feats. And that is a result of his common grace. And, And there are many beautiful things that man has made. And there are things of wonder that men stand in amazement of. And in a sense, we can give glory to God for those gifts and those abilities that enable artists and builders and various men across the spectrum of society, men and women who accomplish great and wonderful things. But as great as all that men can produce may be, probably could not surpass the wonder of the temple at that time. And Jesus reminds us of what the prophet Isaiah said, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men will be humbled. And and, And the result of all of the bringing low of the pride of man is that God intends that he alone will be exalted in that day. It is God's purpose not to share his glory with another. He alone will be exalted in that day, the prophet Isaiah tells us. And so Jesus wants his disciples to see the temple in that way. So then what he does is he goes on and gives in verses 3 through 14 the signs of the ends of the age. What I'd like for us to see is uh, three, see this section in three major headings. First, Jesus says, 
Don't be, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Don't be led astray, verse 4. And then he says, he directs our attention in verse 9 and following to the way in which the opposition of the world to Jesus Christ as Lord and King will be concentrated upon, in a special way, in hatred to those who profess the name of Christ. And he gives that as one of the signs uh, that will come. And then at the very end of the chapter, we'll see that the final sign is the preaching of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, throughout the whole world. So first then, let us look then at what Jesus has to say about the coming of many false teachers and the warning not to be led astray. He says, see to it that you are not, that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And so we're told here that there are those teachers that will come, and they'll claim some kind of a special relation with Jesus and to represent him in a special way. It may be that they, thought they will think of themselves as, uh, as sort of a substitute for Christ or say, I am the Christ, but probably the likelihood here is what they're claiming here is a special relationship with Christ and special revelation given by Christ to them and a special anointing. And Jesus uses the word many. He says, many will come and they will lead many Astray, So not a few and not minimal in terms of their success. The Christian church will periodically, someone has said, be invaded by hordes of bionic Christians. Christians who claim superpowers. Christians who claim to be in a special relationship with Jesus Christ. And they will use words that are seductive, and they will accomplish success. They will, they will be successful in what they attempt to do. Many will follow them. But what does Jesus say? Don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. Don't listen to these people. And how is it that we can do that? Well, first of all, you're not going to listen to them if you know and love Jesus Christ himself. In other words, if you are in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you know him as the one who is your Lord and King, and you acknowledge that he is the one who has forgiven your sins. But also, you will not be led astray if you know what Jesus taught. That is, you know your Bibles. It is so important for you as a Christian to grow in your knowledge of the teaching of Jesus in his word. It is important for us all collectively 
as we have been speaking about, it seems like, in many of our meetings recently, to be immersed in the Word of God, to be reading it, to be meditating upon it. And if you are doing that, you will recognize false Christ and false teachers. But in addition, we need to know our theology. One of the reasons that we uh, have opportunities to delve deeper into Christian teaching is to promote an awareness of the doctrine of Scripture in somewhat of a systematic and logical way so that we understand the doctrines of the Christian faith. You need to grow in your understanding of theology. We all do. And so we're reminded here of one of the signs of the end times, Jesus says, is that there will be a, a proliferation of false teachings. And uh, those false teachings will be popular, and many people will follow them. But we need to be careful that we are not led astray by them. But secondly, Jesus says here that another sign of the end times is wars and rumors of wars. Notice verse 6a. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And then notice also 7a. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, it's interesting that the ESV translation translates it that way, nations will rise against. The actual Greek that lies behind it is a passive uh, participle, which means that nations will be lifted up. They will be acted upon and lifted up by Satan. Nations will be acted upon and lifted up by the powers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, that they will be allowed in God's sovereignty to stir up the hatred of man, and they will become excited, they will be aroused, they will be awakened to war. So it's not merely that nations lift themselves up, but nations are the objects of the actions of demonic spirits. And the peoples are subject to those demonic spirits. And so they are raised up in all kinds of hate and all kinds of violence. And we're, we're told... And we understand that uh, violence increases. And actually, uh, warfare makes some people very rich. And warfare is done today by many different means. It can be technologically very advanced. We're noticing the use of drones and unmanned uh, air, uh, 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 bombing mechanisms. We notice the use of uh, biological uh, weapons, uh, and greed, human greed, factors in to the proliferation of hatred, violence, and warfare. 
And so what does Jesus say that uh, we are to do in these circumstances? He says, see to it, verse 6, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. See to it that you don't become frightened. It's a frightful thing to watch and to see what men do to other men. And here in the United States so far, though there is uh, increased violence in the United States and increased uh, uh, things that uh, uh, going on in our own culture, here in the United States, we've been mercifully protected from some of the things that are going on in other parts of the world. But I think even as we see those images, it is so easy for us to think we, we place ourselves as though we are there and we wonder how, what, it, what it must be like to tr- be attempting to protect your parents, your children, attempting to hide and attempting to escape. It's an awful thing. And Jesus says to his disciples, see to it that you are not alarmed. See to it that you are not afraid. When you see these things, do you become afraid? Even in our experience recently of uh, the uh, COVID care, are you afraid? Are you afraid? Here Jesus says that Christians are to be those who are calm in the face of these things. And it's not that they're not frightening, but God gives a supernatural sense of calm and trust. The psalmist expresses this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? If God is my light and God is my salvation, what is there for me to be afraid of? Same sentiment expressed by Paul in Romans chapter 8. The Lord is the stronghold of my life, the psalmist says. Of what shall I be afraid? He says, though even an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. And though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. God's people are to be those who have confidence. And we're told in verse 6 the reason why. Jesus gives us the reason why we are able to have confidence and calm in the midst of turmoil. He says in verse 6, Do not be alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Underline that word, must. Why would Jesus say that? This must take place. What he means is that in the counsels of God from all eternity, God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. And the Christian is one who knows 
that in spite of the raging hatred of mankind, God rules supreme over it and is accomplishing his ends and his purposes and will gain glory through it. And that is the meaning behind the word must. These things must take place because God has ordained that they take place. Now, there's a difference between saying that God ordains that it takes place and saying that God is the author of that which takes place. There is a huge difference between those things. God is not uh, contaminated in any way with that which is unrighteous and unholy, which occurs according to his will, but occurs because of the sinful state of mankind. Jesus warns us as well, not only that we must know that God's plan is being worked out, the plan from all eternity, but he says, the end is not yet. And by those words, I think he means to warn us not to try to connect what's happening and what we're hearing about with the full, necessarily a specific biblical idea that this means that the end is here. Um, I, one of the things that drew me to this topic in the first place was some conversations that I've had with uh, people who have asked me that question and talked to me about the sense, is this not a sign of the end? And Jesus says, he's going to say in, in just a minute, we're going to know that he says, this is but a beginning of the birth pangs. And so it's a warning to us not to too quickly jump to conclusions as to what this particular event that has happened means in history. That's known to God. It is not known to us. The disciples were always itching for that, even as they were with Jesus in the beginning of Acts. You remember, after his resurrection, he was with them. And uh, they said, are you going to establish the kingdom of Israel at this time? And Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons, but as for you, and then he sends them out into the world. And that's, in a sense, what we're getting here. Do the next thing, as we heard this morning. Do the next thing. Be involved in the spreading of the gospel. Be involved in the spread of the kingdom of God. So we see second, the second sign here, this warfare, this increase in warfare and hatred in the, men's, in the minds of men, that this will increase. And then thirdly, we note that Jesus mentions in 7b that there will be famines and earthquakes and natural catastrophes in various places. Do we not see that? And have not we experienced that, even uh, seeing it in various parts of the world? Uh, most recently, uh, fires, fires and famines, all of these things that are happening in the world around us, uh, in the natural realm. And when these things happen, they are, they are indications that we ought to seek the Lord. We ought to repent of our sins. They are the beginning of birth pangs. That is the beginning of something that is going to end in joy. That's a great point about birth pangs, right? Um, as as uh, and, uh, I, I can't say anything from personal experience. But the great joy that lies ahead is what fills your mind and fills your heart 
as you make your way to the hospital and the delivery room or wherever it is that you have your child. Uh, the Lord fills you with joy, and Jesus expresses this. He says, when a woman is giving birth, in John 16, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. These are but the beginning of birth pains. They are the beginning of something that will end with great joy. That's what the believer knows, and that's how we live with wisdom in these circumstances. But I want us to notice in 9 through 13 that Jesus points as well to a fact that there will be an intensification and a directedness of the hatred of the all nations. Now, the Jewish people um, persecuted the church, and Jesus told of a time when the, when, the, when the apostles would experience the hatred of the Jewish people. He said, they'll put you out of your, their, their synagogues. They'll, they'll, they'll persecute you. And certainly the apostle Paul and the other apostles experienced the hatred of uh, the Jewish leadership. They were hated. But here, notice that the hatred is from all nations. It's universal in its scope, not merely limited in the locality of the Jewish people. The world that is at first tolerant of the Christian church, and in fact, in some areas and throughout the history of Christendom, not only tolerant, but in many areas, promoting Christianity. And the church has lived, as it were, under the protection of the power of the state as the power, as the state has recognized a separate sphere for the church. But I think what we can expect is that the state will lose that sense of a separate sphere for the church, and the state will instead turn its sights upon the church. And the reason for that is that a state that is pluralistic, that is a state that allows for all religions and all points of view, will eventually require those who hold to the worship of the one true God to bow before pluralism, the many gods. And eventually that will be a requirement. And when this state when the state does that, it becomes what we call totalitarian. That is, it requires the total allegiance of every person. And this is exactly what, what every Christian will never be able to do. No one who is a Christian will be able to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. No one will be able to say that Jesus Christ is not Lord and King and so the state will not receive that homage. And it's interesting to see something of the development of that even in our own time. It seems to me that the state, in a sense, has been in subjection to Christ throughout Western history and has stood, in a sense, under the usefulness of the kingdom of Christ in its protection of a certain order in which Christianity is allowed to flourish outwardly and openly. 
it stands subject to God. And I think it's that's that subjection to God by the state is what Paul has in mind in Romans 13 when he says that we are to see the authority that the state wields as God's authority ministered through the state. But when the state, and this is the shift, and I actually think we're in the middle of this shift, when the state emancipates itself from God's order, they no longer exercise sound judgment as to what is good and what is evil. And instead, that which is evil is called good, and that which is good is called evil. When the state takes that point of view, it becomes demonic, it becomes totalitarian, and it becomes an entity to which Christians cannot subject themselves. Because to do so would be to deny the Lord. Jesus says, at that time when this happens, then you will know the true Christians from the false. It will become very clear, and there will be a great falling away. There will be an apostasy. He says in verse 10, and then many will fall away. Not only will they fall away, but the ones who fall away will betray one another and hate one another. And that falling away will be promoted by false prophets who arise and lead many astray with them. And so there is a falling away, an apostasy, a sort of a renunciation of what I used to believe. Haven't you heard stories of well-known individuals who have done that recently? This will become widespread because it's much easier to live in the world and to go along with the dominant culture. Another thing that Jesus says in verse 12 about this time is that because of lawlessness, the increase of it, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. It's the nature of love to burn, to be hot. All you have to do is think of a mother's love for her child. Mother holds her child in her arms, and what she feels for the child is something that cannot be put into words. Am I right? Am I right? You can't even put into words that burning love that you feel for your child, that warmth, that affection. And in the body of Christ, that love that we have for Christ manifests itself in a warmth and an openness and an embracing of one another. And the body of Christ ought to be characterized by that warmth and by the expression of love, not love hidden, but love expressed and love known and loved, love that is something that becomes a mark of what it means to belong to the body of Christ. We ought to be, and I pray that you will pray for an increase of this, even in your own heart. We ought to be a people burning with love for Jesus Christ and for one another. We ought to be affectionate to one another. We ought to be those who express appreciation. We ought to be those who love one another. But Paul 
describes a time when love will grow cold, when he says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty and stress. And isn't it that the case? Difficulty, stress. What will happen? People will become lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant. What goes with pride and arrogance? You know what he says next? Abusive. Abusive. People who are proud abuse the people around them. Not only abusive, but then heartless, because obviously if you abuse someone, there is pain that is inflicted. But the heart grows cold to the sight of pain, and the abuse continues. And so don't we see that? Don't we see a general heartlessness, brutality, and a lack of self-control generally in our culture today. So I want to urge each of you, and as I urge myself, I'm hoping to grow in this area, that I would know and understand what true love is, that I would know and understand what it is to embrace the other. No matter how foreign the other may be to me, but that I might desire to know and desire to do good for another. And not merely those that I'm comfortable with, and not merely those who are nearest to me, but those that may be outside my circle, that we would learn to be those who express true affection and love, that that would mark us as a people, because Jesus says that's the mark of the end when it's not there, when it's not there. And so we want to be those who have love and demonstrate it. And then we come to verse 13. Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. And so uh, this enduring to the end is largely enabled by God's keeping of us. It is God who keeps us. Remember the benediction in the end of the book of Jude. He who is able to keep you from falling. He who is able to keep you from falling presents you blameless before his throne. It is God who will keep you. It is God who, having found you, and shown his love to you, will never let you go. And Jesus says, the one who is in that condition will endure to the end, and you will be saved. God will enable you to be saved. And one of the means that he'll enable you to be saved is that he'll give you faith in his promise and faith in his word, and faith in the very fact that even now you are hearing from his lips what you see going on around you in the world, and he's saying to you, don't be alarmed. These things must come to pass. Don't be alarmed. Persevere. Persevere in your faith and in your trust. Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. That you would remember that I told them to you. Remember that Jesus is the one who has already told you of these things. And so I want to urge you to put your trust not in people, but in God. People will fail you. 
God will not. And I want to urge you, and as I urge myself, that we not run from suffering, but that we embrace it as a mark of belonging to Christ. And I want to urge you to be honest and to confess publicly your faith in Christ. Be honest about your convictions, even when you sense that others don't agree with you and may like you the less for expressing it. Endure. Endure with courage. Endure with faith. Endure with trust. And speak boldly for Jesus Christ. We need to be those people. You may have heard of the uh, testimony of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was one of the uh, fathers of the church in the early church. And the account of his martyrdom is well known. It says that, uh, I'll read just part of it, when Polycarp was brought before the Roman, uh, he was brought into the arena. He was brought before them, and the proconsul inquired whether he were Polycarp, and on his confessing that he was, he tried to persuade him to a denial of Christ, and he said, have respect to your age, swear by the genius of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists, that is, with Christians. But when the magistrate pressed him hard, he said, Swear the oath, and I will release you. Revile the Christ. And Polycarp said, Fourscore and six years have I been his servant, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But on his persisting again and saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar, he answered. It's almost as though this man did. He really wanted to release Polycarp but he was also demanding something that in his mind was very simple. Just say it. Polycarp couldn't. He answered, If thou supposest vainly that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as thou sayest, and faintest that thou art ignorant of who I am, hear thou plainly, I am a Christian. But if thou wouldst learn the doctrine of Christianity, assign a day and give me a hearing. And the proconsul was astonished. And he sent his herald to proclaim three times in the midst of the stadium, Polycarp. Polycarp hath confessed himself to be a Christian. And they announced that throughout the stadium. And the wrath of the crowds came out upon him, saying, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the puller down of our gods, who teaches others not to sacrifice or to worship. And so Polycarp was burned alive. And he gave testimony in a dramatic fashion to his faith in Jesus Christ. You and I are not in those circumstances. Surely, in the midst of the groups in which you mix, in the midst of a people in which we uh, 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 have times of social activity with, can we not speak for Christ? Jesus said that finally, the final sign of victory is that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
And so the great work of the church will go on, even though the church is the object of the world's hatred, and the announcement of the free grace of God in Christ, the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ, the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom will go on until it reaches all nations, and then the end will come. This is what Jesus says finally in answer to the disciples' question. When will these things be? When the gospel goes out to all nations. So what are we engaged in? We are engaged in the greatest of works. And my prayer is, and even for some of you who are young people here today, that God will raise you up and that he will make you his instruments to make his good news known in your circles. And in doing that, in doing that in all circles, that gospel will reach all cultures, all languages, all nations. And when the final one of Christ elect, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world, is brought into the fold, Jesus Christ will return again and his temple will be complete. Because, you know, that temple that we started with in Jerusalem, that was not the temple. The temple is the church of God. And the temple is made up of every single one of you who trust in Christ. You are living stones. You are part of that great work, that temple. He's calling you out of the world and making you to be his special people. May the Lord grant us By listening to the teaching of Jesus, may God grant to us wisdom to live in days of turmoil. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that we know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We ask that you in your great mercy would do such a saving work in our hearts that we would be enabled not only to believe and to trust, but to endure to the end. And for each of us, no matter what our age, whether young or old, whether we have many days ahead or whether we sense that the days are fewer, may it be that you would grant to us that grace that we need to persevere and to endure to the end and receive the crown of life. We ask all this in Jesus' name.